So next time we'll be in 2 Samuel. And, you know, we've been referring to the Psalms a lot throughout the Bible study. So I think we're just going to have one dedicated talk on the Psalms, and that'll be today. Okay, it fits well for all the wanderings and the persecution that David went through. So we're going to mainly talk about the uh, complaint psalms today. Someone's estimated that 25 to 30 percent of the psalms are what we could call complaint psalms. Now, I thought of this story. Probably many of you know the story of uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, here he kind of looks like King David. But uh, I don't know if any of you saw his appearance on David Letterman some time ago where, boy, was he psychotic or becoming uh, schizophrenic or what was going on? And turns out, I guess, it was just a big hoax. That's true. The movie was made about him in this state, and then it turns out it all wasn't true. And it reminded me of King David, who did something uh, quite similar at one time. So he's fleeing from Saul as he's doing so much of uh, the last half of the book of 1 Samuel. David left fleeing from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. The king's officials said to Achish, Isn't this David, the king of his country? This is the man about whom the women sang as they danced. Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. Their words made a deep impression on David, and he became very much afraid of King Achish. So whenever David was around them, he pretended to be insane and acted like a madman when they tried to restrain him. He would scribble on the city gates and let spit drool down his beard. Our picture of King David is usually not you know, doing these kinds of things. But, um, you know, he, when, as he was uh, fleeing from Saul, he did a whole lot of things that are all over the board, across the spectrum. Of course, we have to admire some of the things he did. Two times he had a chance to kill Saul. Remember, in the cave, it would have been very easy. Instead, he cut off a piece of his robe, proved to Saul he wasn't really after him, to take the kingship away, had another opportunity. Uh, I mean, that, that says something very good about um, David. But then we have... Other instances. Here's the, uh, I told you about Nabal, who eventually had a massive stroke. But when he heard about David, Nabal said, Who is he? I've never heard of him. Country is full of runaway slaves nowadays. I'm not going to take my bread and water and the animals I've butchered for my sheep shears and give them to people who come from I don't know where. David's men went back to him and told him what Nabal had said. Buckle your swords, he ordered. And they all did. And hundreds of men went off to kill Nabal and his servants. Now, of course, um, his wife intervened, and it didn't happen. But here we see David out to get an enemy. Okay, now we have to skip forward to 2 Samuel for another illustration of this. Here's again something I think to admire in the life of David. He's fleeing from Absalom. He's humiliated, uh, running away from Jerusalem with his men. And one of Saul's relatives, Shimei, son of Gera, came out to meet him, cursing him as he came. Now David is with all these uh, warriors, and this one man comes up, cursing him, started throwing stones at David and his officials. Even though David was surrounded by his men and his bodyguards, Shimei cursed him and said, get out, get out, murderer, criminal. You took Saul's kingdom, which of course he didn't, and now the Lord is punishing you for murdering so many of Saul's family. The Lord has given the kingdom to your son Absalom, and you are ruined, you murderer. And Abishai said to the king, your majesty, why do you let this dog curse you? Let him go over there and let me go over there and cut off his head. And David said, that's none of your business. And so even they had the power to kill this man, they didn't do it. So David and his men continued along the road. Shimei kept up with them, walking on the hillside. He was cursing and throwing stones and dirt at them as they went. And the king and all his men were worn out when they reached the Jordan. And there they rested. 
And it's even more remarkable that when David comes back uh, victoriously to Jerusalem, that um, you know he meets Shimei and the men again, hey, kill this guy. And David says, no, we're not going to kill Shimei. But uh, that's not the full story, unfortunately. So that's wonderful. I think the way David treated Shimei, I've got to be honest, though, wish he wouldn't have said this, but on his deathbed here, he's giving Solomon some advice. And he would say to Solomon, well, there is also Shimei, son of Gera, from the town in Benjamin. He cursed me bitterly. But when he met me at the Jordan River, I gave him my solemn promise in the name of the Lord that I would not have him killed. But you must not let him go unpunished. You know what to do. And you must see to it that he is put to death. So we see David kind of um, going back and forth here. We could give lots more examples. Okay, but this is a good time, I think, to... Uh, talk about the Psalms. Again, not all written by David. Uh, we quoted the Psalms uh, when we talked about Moses and Job and Jeremiah. Certainly contributed, contributed a lot there, but many of them written by David. Here's one entitled, A Song of David, Psalm 17. And David would say, You know my heart. You have come to me at night. You have examined me completely and found no evil desire in me. I speak no evil as others do. I have obeyed your command and have not followed the paths of violence. Remember, God would say, well, you can't build the temple, David, because you've been a man of blood. I have always walked in your ways and have never strayed from it. And uh, that's David. Well, of course, we just have to read over a few Psalms. Psalm 25. Keep your promise, Lord, and forgive my sins, for they are many. Okay, but at least at at this time in Psalm 17, um, David is not... uh, Uh, rebellious in his attitude toward God, but it's interesting, the contrast there. We won't talk about that. Okay, what I do want to speak of, though, are these, um, the Psalms that are are rather angry. Well, that's an understatement, um, as you'll see. How do we deal with these? I'll just give you a few examples. Psalm 37, the Lord laughs at wicked people because he knows they will soon be destroyed. And I made the point a couple weeks ago that um, we're all God's children, good and bad alike, rebellious, trusting alike. Uh, In God's mind, we're all his children. And well, this would seem to be kind of a contradiction to that. God laughs at wicked people. Um, Give lots of um, counter arguments here. But what do we do with verses like this? Uh, Again, as an argument against that, Ezekiel 33. Tell them that as surely as I, the sovereign Lord and the living God, I do not enjoy seeing sinners die. I'd rather see them stop sinning and live. Israel, stop the evil you are doing. Why do you want to die? That doesn't sound like a God who, who laughs at wicked people. And, of course, we have Jesus looking at wicked people who wanted to kill them, kill him. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've stoned the prophets. Now you want to kill me and how I'd like to take you in like a mother hen. Now, that sounds like a God who loves wicked people. But Scripture's inspired. Here we have this verse. What do we do with it? Some more examples. Now, this is coming back to Psalm 17. We quoted earlier. David would say, Deadly enemies surround me. They have no pity and speak proudly. They are around me now, wherever I turn, watching for a chance to pull me down. They're like lions, waiting for me, wanting to tear me to pieces. Come, Lord, oppose my enemies and defeat them. Save me from the wicked by your sword. Save me from those who in this life have all they want. Punish them with the sufferings you have stored up for them. May there be enough for their children and some left over for their children's children. Okay, um, really had a lot of anger towards his enemies here in this psalm. 
Well, here's a very difficult one. This is probably written by Jeremiah, because this is referring here to the Babylonian captivity. Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy are those who pay you back for what you have done to us, who take your babies and smash them against a rock. Now, so here we've got scripture. And, uh, you know, you could quote this to do all kinds of things, and some have. How do we fit this into our model? How do we, uh, the Bible is an inspired book, clearly is, and we have words like this. Um, All scripture is inspired by God, is Psalm 137 inspired, and is useful for teaching the truth. Uh, What truth do we get out of that last verse? Rebuking error, correcting faults, and giving instruction for right living. Dashing babies against the rocks. This is a challenging um, subject here. Well, it gets worse before it gets better. We'll read Psalm 58. Break the teeth of these fierce lions, O God. May they disappear like water draining away. May they be crushed like weeds on a path. May they be like snails that dissolve into slime. There's our title verse. May they be like a baby born dead that never sees the light. Before they know it, they are cut down like weeds. In his fierce anger, God will blow them away while they are still living. The righteous will be glad when they see sinners punished. Should we be glad when we see sinners punished? They will wade through the blood of the wicked. We look forward to that day. People will say, the righteous are indeed rewarded. There is indeed a God who judges the world. Um, Again, kind of my thesis for this whole Bible study is God is exactly like Jesus in character. Um, They are one and the same. You've seen the Father, you've seen the Son, and Jesus came to reveal the Father. And we don't see these words in Jesus, or these teachings in Jesus. So what do we do with them? And again, we contrast Jesus' words, repeated so many times by Paul, by John, whole New Testament. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, I guess you could say, well, I am praying for my enemies in this psalm. But is this what you should pray for your enemies? Um, I think that often the approach is, well, here I've got a couple of options. Uh, I can love my enemy. I can pray for them. I can have that approach. But the Bible also gives me another option, okay? which means uh, practically that 99 times out of 100 we'll go with the uh, condemning and judging and doing whatever we can against our enemies. How do we fit it together? Well, I think Psalm 139 is a, is a good example of why these verses are inspired and why we actually need these in our Bible. Opens up, Lord, you have examined me and you know me. You know everything I do. From far away, you understand all my thoughts. You see me, whether I'm working or resting. You know all my actions. Even before I speak, you already know what I will say. You are all around me on every side. You protect me with your power. Your knowledge of me is too deep. It is beyond my understanding. Where could I go to escape from you? Where could I get away from your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I lay down in the world of the dead, you would be there. And this goes on and on for many verses, which I won't include here. David basically saying, God, you know me. You know me, you know me. You know my thoughts. You know what I'm thinking. You know what I'm going to say. You know everything about me. Continues on, the days allotted to me had all been recorded in your book before any of them ever began. Oh God, how difficult I find your thoughts. How many of them there are. If I counted them, there would be more than the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. It just goes on and on. You know me, God. You know what I'm thinking. 
And it's almost as if, as we're continuing in this psalm, David says, well, God, you really know me. You know what I'm thinking, so I may as well just be honest with you. So let me just tell you. Oh, God, how I wish you would kill the wicked. How I wish violent people would leave me alone. They say wicked things about you. They speak evil things against your name. Oh, Lord, how I hate those who hate you. How I despise those who rebel against you. I hate them with a total hatred. I regard them as my enemies. Phew, got it out. Okay, after telling God, you know what my thoughts. So let me tell you what my thoughts are. These are my thoughts. I wish you would punish my enemies. And it's interesting how the psalm concludes. Examine me, O God, and know my mind. Test me and discover my thoughts. Find out if there is any evil in me, because there just may be, based on what I've just been talking to you about. And guide me in the everlasting way. Um, I think the, the psalms, and even the angry words in the psalm, um, well, you know, did Jesus have to uh, pray this kind of a prayer? Did Jesus hate his enemies and then had to talk to his father about his deep hatred for his enemies? So in a sense, you know, if, if we struggle with this, we hate our enemies, uh, we need the example of someone who hated his enemies in order to kind of bring us out of the, the situation that we're in. This example is, I think, very important to us. One thing we'd say, it's be honest with God, right? Might as well just tell him what's on your mind. Don't tell God what you think he wants to hear. Okay, if you have an angry thought, well, the best person in the world to talk to is God. And we have example of scripture here that that's what we should do. Here's another uh, really good example, I think. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God. I cry aloud and he hears me. In times of trouble, I pray to the Lord. All night long, I lift my hands in prayer, but I cannot find comfort. When I think of God, I sigh. When I meditate, I feel discouraged. He keeps me awake all night. I'm so worried that I cannot speak. I think of days gone by and remember years of long ago. I spend the night in deep thought. I meditate. And this is what I ask myself. Will the Lord always reject us? Will he never again be pleased with us? Has he stopped loving us? Does his promise no longer stand? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has anger taken the place of his compassion? And then I said, what hurts me most is this, that God is no longer powerful. Now, is God no longer powerful? Well, this is how, if, if David wrote this, this was how he felt. And so he told God how he felt and you know, if you're doing a devotional reading before you go to bed and this is what you read, it might be rather discouraging. That's your thought um, for the day. Well, don't stop. We'll keep reading because this is what we're supposed to experience in prayer. Okay, we share with God. And uh, boy, you will experience this when you take care of patients. You'll see great injustice and child abuse and all kinds of horrible things. And it's only natural to feel this is not right. God, why didn't you do something? Doesn't God want us to tell him when something like that upsets us? And I think we have evidence here in scripture that, that he really does want us to talk to him in that way. Well, notice how it continues on after saying all that. I will remember your great deeds, Lord. I will recall the wonders you did in the past. I will think about all you have done. I will meditate on all your mighty acts. Everything you do, God, is holy. No God is as great as you. You are the God who works miracles. Notice he's remembering now his power. 
You showed your might among the nations. By your power you saved your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid, and the depths of the sea trembled. The clouds poured down rain, thunder crashed from the sky, lightning flashed in all directions. The crash of your thunder rolled out, and flashes of lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. You walked through the waves, you crossed the deep sea, but your footprints could not be seen. You led your people like a shepherd with Moses and Aaron in charge. So this is a conversation with God. And David shares with God his discouragement, but as he is in this uh, communion with God, things come to mind. He remembers this, he remembers that. And by the time he gets to the end of his prayer, uh, you can just tell he feels much better now. Okay, his eyes are opened. And I think this is really what we're to experience with God in prayer, this kind of experience. So it would be kind of like, let's say this is a psychiatrist here. And we have a patient that comes to a psychiatrist. And um, so what can I do for you today? And the patient just says, well, everything's fine. Doing great. Don't have any problems. Are you sad? Are you depressed? No, I'm fine. Now, how much is going to be accomplished in that kind of an encounter? If the patient does not say, okay, I'm going to open up and I'm going to tell you what's really on my mind. It's going to be totally unproductive unless there is an honest exchange. Um, a very sad case I saw recently, a, a man who I'd actually seen three or four times for a variety of um, neurologic symptoms. And uh, many physical symptoms are related to underlying depression and anxiety. So we see that quite frequently. And, and it seemed to me that that was probably the case, but I couldn't really uh, uncover what it was. And then finally, in about the third or fourth visit, it came out, and I was shocked that his grandkids, who were living with him, uh, were abusing him, and uh, physically, emotionally, all kinds of things. Well, now it all made sense. You know, this horrible thing was triggering, uh, you know, just an incredible depression, physical symptoms. Um, I think it's the only time I've called the police um, since I've been a physician. And I happened to see him back sometime later. The, the grandkids were taken out of the home, and he was you know, still dealing with a difficult situation, but physically feeling a lot better. And so it was kind of, even I remember hearing it at the time, what happened, it was like, well, finally we're getting somewhere. Finally we're getting to the root of what is the cause of, of what's going on. So our subject here we're thinking about is prayer. And um, I think prayer is really conversation with God, as you would talk with a friend. Um, this is to remind me, uh, this is over a year ago or so, that um, I was, uh, I think, think I just finished a Bible study, and I was driving home. I think I had the afternoon off, and my cell phone rang, and I looked at who it was, and it said Jesus on my cell phone, you know, how the name shows up there. And, uh, you know, I was completely shocked. I mean, I, it, it rang like three times, and I was just looking at it, and uh, you know, finally I realized I'm about to lose a phone call from Jesus, you know, so I picked up. <laughs> And uh, then I remembered that it was someone I ran into out here at Loma Linda, a gardener whose name is Jesus, and I put his number in. And um, so I was kind of had a, a letdown. <laughs> but, well, what would you say if, if God called you? Now, oftentimes when we talk with God, and I think praise is very important, of course, but... Um, is prayer just about praising God? Now, just imagine you have a friend that you talk to uh, frequently. 
What would it be like if you're on either end of that conversation? Either you are just being praised, you're awesome, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, you're great for the whole time, or you're going the other direction telling the other person, you know, you would fall asleep pretty quickly if, if that was the extent of your interaction with a friend. Okay, there's more to it than that. That's part of it, yes, but there's more to it. Or how about um, we pray for things, uh, poor people, homeless, and, and I think... This should be on our minds. I mean, there's so much scriptural concern for the poor and the outcasts of society. But let's just say that for you, it's not on the radar screen. I mean, you don't think about it all day. It's not, not even a blip of a, of a concern. But uh, then when you pray, all of these things that uh, really deep down don't matter to you that much, now they, they all come out. Um, is God impressed? when we uh, ask for things that uh, deep down we, we're really not uh, engaged in a meaningful way. Would God rather have... And when you have a friend, what do you talk about? You talk about what's been on your mind the whole day. Okay, You talk about the things that really matter to you. Um, is God impressed if we talk to him about things that we're not really concerned about? We should be concerned about the poor. I'm not saying that, but you know, the point here is be honest. Well, and what we often do is... We come to God with uh, you know, a grocery list of things. I need this, I need that. And again, that should be, we should tell God the things that we need. But again, if we just imagine you have a friend, what would it be like if your friend is just coming to you with, uh, okay, here are the 10 things tonight that I need you to do for me. Goodbye. Okay? Would that be a very uh, rewarding uh, friendship? Okay, so prayer involves much more than these things. It really looks like, Somewhat, at times, like the Psalms we've just read. We're honest. We share these things with God. And this quote about uh, Martin Luther, I found quite amazing. Luther did not pass a day without devoting three hours at least to prayer. Could you maintain concentration for three hours? And they were hours selected from those the most favorable to study, full of adoration, fear, and hope, as when one speaks to a friend. And that's the bottom line. It is prayer this time when we really should begin to experience an intimacy and a friendship, a real connection, relationship with God. That's what it's all about. So you know, probably you've heard this about in Tibetan Buddhist tradition here, that we have these prayer wheels. And the theory with the prayer wheels is that the gods are happy if the prayers are ascending. So we've got to keep the prayer wheels, keep spinning them, because that pleases God or the gods. Now, this would, this would kind of make God um, not real smart, would it? Just happy to hear something going up. So are our prayers just repetitions of things that we've memorized? And then we feel good after we've said them, because at least, well, we, we had a little uh, exchange there. Uh, that's not prayer. Prayer is, is an interactive process. Uh, let me give an example from Jeremiah, the one who said, may the babies, happier those who dash the babies against the rocks. Okay? Because Jeremiah talks to God in the book of Jeremiah just like he talks to God in, in that psalm. So here's an example here from chapters 13 to 15. Lord, if I argued my case with you, you would prove to be right, yet I must question you about matters of justice. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why do dishonest people succeed? You plant them and they take root, they grow and bear fruit. They always speak well of you, yet they really do not care about you. But Lord, you know me. You see what I do and how I love you. And this is kind of like uh, Psalm 139. You know me, God. And so it's almost like, what's on your mind, Jeremiah? 
And here it comes. Drag these evil people away like sheep to be butchered. Guard them until it is time for them to be slaughtered. How long will our land be dry and the grass in every field be withered? Animal and birds are dying because of the wickedness of our people who say God doesn't see what we are doing. Now, the Bible does not have an attached commentary by God. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, when we, when we you know, talked about that uh, um, Samuel hewed King Agag in pieces. There isn't a little footnote from God, you know, well done, Samuel. So uh, we, we read the story, but we don't have a commentary. And it's like that with the Psalms. We don't have a, a little commentary from God, I approve this Psalm, uh, this one, a little angry here. We just have the words. But here in the story of Jeremiah, we do have a commentary. God does talk. And the Lord said, Jeremiah, if you get tired racing against people, how can you race against horses? If you can't even stand up in open country, how will you manage in the jungle by the Jordan? Okay, a, a gentle rebuke uh, from God. Okay, but the conversation continues. Then I said, Lord, you understand. Remember me and help me. Let me have revenge on those who persecute you. Do not be so patient with them that they succeed in killing me. Remember that it is for your sake that I am insulted. I did not spend my time with other people laughing and having a good time. In obedience to your orders, I stayed by myself and was filled with anger. Why do I keep on suffering? Why are my wounds incurable? Why won't they heal? Do you intend to disappoint me like a stream that goes dry in the summer? And thankfully, we have God interacting with Jeremiah. This is what he said. To this, the Lord replied, If you return, I will take you back and you will be my servant again. If instead of talking nonsense, you proclaim a worthwhile message, you will be my prophet again. The people will come back to you, and you will not need to go to them. Isn't that interesting? The words of Jeremiah, I mean, we, you know, we could quote this uh, in a bulletin or something for church, but we've got to take the story as a whole, where God would come back to that and say, uh, you know what, that's, that's a worthless message, what you just said there, Jeremiah. Okay, so... Um, we need to try to, I think that's why it's so important, is making Jesus everything, our perfect picture of who God is, because Jesus then becomes the commentary for the whole Bible. We are comparing everything to Jesus. And speaking of that, here's a Psalm 69, a messianic psalm. I think a good illustration of that. It's quoted so many times in the New Testament as referring to Jesus. Save me, O God, the water is up to my neck. I'm sinking in deep mud, and there is no solid ground. I am out in deep water, and the waves are about to drown me. I am worn out from calling for help, and my throat is aching. I have strained my eyes looking for your help. Those who hate me for no reason are more, more numerous than the hairs of my head. Oops. And uh, this was quoted in John 15. Okay, thinking about Jesus, the, John would say, This, however, was bound to happen so that what is written in the law may come true. They hated me for no reason at all. So this is referring to Psalm 69. Okay, we just read on. My sins, O God, are not hidden from you. Now, we just quoted that this would seem to refer to Jesus. And now the psalmist would say, My sins, O God, are not hidden from you. You know how foolish I have been. Don't let me bring shame on those who trust you, Sovereign Lord Almighty. Don't let me bring disgrace to those who worship you, O God of Israel. It is for your sake that I have been insulted and that I am covered with shame. I am like a stranger to my relatives, like a foreigner to my family. My devotion to your temple burns in me like a fire. 
and the insults which are hurled at you fall on me. And even though this verse starts out with my sins, I've been foolish, it is very interesting how the New Testament writers um, use the Old Testament. After Jesus cleansed the temples, his disciples remembered the scripture that says, my devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. That's Psalm 69. Okay, and Paul, using the last part of this, would say, Christ did not please himself. Instead, as the scripture says, the insults which are hurled at you have fallen on me. It's interesting, this psalm here that mixes in uh, someone who has been sinful and foolish, uh, you know, is in some places refers to Jesus. You know how I am insulted, how I am disgraced and dishonored. You see all my enemies. Insults have broken my heart, and I am in despair. I had hoped for sympathy, but there was none. For comfort, but I found none. When I was hungry, they gave me poison. When I was thirsty, they offered me vinegar. And of course, that should bring back some obvious um, memories from Jesus, who was given vinegar. Okay, and in John 19, when Jesus knew everything had been finished, he said, I'm thirsty. He said this so that scripture could finally be concluded. Okay, when I was thirsty. Okay, referring to this. And of course, a jar with vinegar was there. And, and again, recalling back to Psalm 69. Okay, how do we tie all this together? By the way, do you think Jesus was really thirsty? Or he wasn't thirsty at all, but he just thought, oh, I've got to check one more thing off the list here. Um, I think he was really thirsty. Okay, but this is how Psalm 69 ends. May their banquets cause their ruin. Now, this is the person who's been going through this. Now, this is the thoughts that the psalmist has. May their banquets cause their ruin. May, may their sacred feasts cause their downfall. Strike them with blindness. Now, this is, again, we just read about, you know, I thirst. He was given vinegar. Uh, were these Jesus' thoughts on the cross? Strike them with blindness. Make their backs always weak. Pour out your anger on them. Let your indignation overtake them. May their camps be left deserted. May no one be left alive in their tents. They persecute those whom you've punished. They talk about the sufferings of those you have wounded. Keep a record of all their sins. Don't let them have any part in your salvation. May their names be erased from the book of the living. May they not be included in the list of your people. But I am in pain and despair. Lift me up, O God, and save me. Were these Jesus' words? Keep a record of their sins. I mean, what did Jesus say when he died? Father, forgive them. So how do we reconcile this? Well, I think much of the Bible is really a contrast between Jesus and everyone else. And I think it's why we have to elevate Jesus the way he was, what he said about God, what he revealed about God. Um, he's the only hero in the Bible. Uh, we can admire some things about David. Okay, but let's be careful following David in too many ways or we may end up wishing for some of the things that David uh, wished for. Um, our hero is Jesus Christ. And I think we see the contrast here. This is what David did. This is what David thought. And he went through similar things to what Jesus went through, but Jesus did not have those thoughts. And we see the contrast between the two ways. Well, there's one other point I want to just bring up uh, very briefly. The subject of prayer is, I think, a very difficult, very challenging one. But I have many times uh, had patients, um, you know, who are in the hospital visiting a loved one, say something like, well, if I just had more faith, I know that, um, you know, my wife or whatever would be healed if I just had more faith. And um, 
Now, uh, I can't say everything you know, that I'd like to say about that. Certainly, faith is important, extremely important. But we have to be a little careful here, because what would that imply? It would sort of imply God has all the power to heal this person. And if your faith gets up to maybe God needs 30% faith, maybe you reach 29%. And, oh, you just didn't quite make it. And so um, God couldn't intervene. That would kind of paint a picture of God. As, um, I think that wouldn't be very favorable. So how do we understand this? Well, what I'm not saying is that prayer doesn't make a difference, although I like this quote by C.S. Lewis, who said, I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. And that's kind of the point I've been making all the way through. Prayer is ultimately changes us, but does that mean prayer doesn't have any effect on the world around us? Um, I think it definitely does. And just, just one quote on that from James 5. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. It does matter. But how does it work? Why does it often not seem to work? Even when we're dealing with children and people like that that, that are suffering, uh, why doesn't God intervene when we pray? Maybe we're not earnest enough. Well, I think this is, uh, this is where the, the cosmic conflict, the great controversy uh, comes in. And we've tried to make a big deal of that view here in this Bible study. And I think this is a very complicated subject. There are nuances and complexities that we don't fully understand. But I want to give you the best example I know of how this comes into the subject of prayer. Um, Daniel prayed an incredible prayer. And nothing happened. 21 days, his prayer wasn't answered. And remarkably here, an angel comes to explain to Daniel what happened after his prayer. Daniel, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayers. Ever since the first day you decided to humble yourself in order to um, gain understanding, and I have come in answer to your prayer. And this pulls an incredible curtain back of understanding of what goes on in this area behind the curtain, in this cosmic conflict. And here's the description. This is what happened. The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia, sometimes called the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia, opposed me for 21 days. Now, who is opposing um, Gabriel? Then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. Who's that? After the guardian angel of Greece will appear. Who are all these, um, these forces? There is no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. I think this is a wonderful window for us because, uh, you know, Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. He is the god of this age. Uh, there is a cosmic conflict that we, it's hard for us to open our eyes to that dimension. But I think when we pray, we really are intervening in a very meaningful way in this cosmic conflict between God and Satan, uh, angelic and demonic forces. And I think we're entering into that uh, arena. And in this case, when Daniel prayed, it would seem like it launched this, uh, this battle behind the scenes. And eventually God was victorious because of Daniel's prayer. We'll talk about what actually happened in this story. Um, so there are nuances, there are difficulties that we don't understand, okay? But that doesn't mean we shouldn't, prayer, shouldn't pray. We should talk with God honestly, and we should share our concerns with God, and I think our prayers really do make a, a significant impact in our own lives and in the world. All right, let's pray. 
Father, as we communicate with you, as we think about you throughout the day, pray that you would become more of a real presence in our lives, not someone who is peripheral that we think about once or twice a day, but that we would continually direct our thoughts, uh, all of our thoughts to you, that in that conversation you would lead us to see you more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly, and to see how we can have an impact in the world more clearly. In your name we pray, amen.